I'm Anna Webb. Welcome to A Dog's Life. Hey, Mr. Binks, you know how I'm always looking out for you, making sure you're in the best physical health. You know we really look after your diet and you do, I'm sure, have a very healthy microbiome. But you know as well, I also worry about your moods and how you're feeling. And guess what? That's why we're jumping on Zoom now to talk to Andrew Hale, who's going to explain this at a whole new level. Andrew Hale, gosh, thank you so much for joining me on A Dog's Life. Oh, thanks for having me, Anna. I've been really looking forward to us uh, having this chat together. No, I really, really have actually, because um, I feel I feel we have a lot in common, really. And it was so lovely to be introduced to you by Morag Sutherland, who I know you also know well, of the Raw Feeding Vet Society at the London Vet Show. What a great event that was, and Morag's fabulous, isn't she? So it was great, and it was just really, um, uh, it was really good timing that we happened to bump into each other at the same time uh, at the London Vet Show. So I think sometimes, you know, the universe says this has to happen, and maybe that's the case. Yes, I, I'm I'm quite tuned into the universe, as as you know. And I mean, touch wood. <laughs> so far, lots of positive energies are are actually happening, you know, in 2023. So I'm I'm so hoping it's going to be a good year because it's all been very up and down, really. Not only for humans in the last few years, but certainly for dogs. Uh, yeah, for sure. And I think this is just my my view on on things, of course. But I think there is um. We're experiencing a bit of a welfare crisis, actually, uh, and that isn't um, specifically to do with one thing, specifically more a lack of awareness, I think, a lack of awareness of of dogs and their uh, emotional care and support needs, their physical needs, a lack of awareness for the general public about how to um, be the best parent they can be for their dogs. I think there's a lot of things that happen um, that are happening more widely that that make it very confusing actually I think for the for the general public and, and their dogs but uh there's a lack of awareness about our own uh, emotional health and care and support needs as well Anna you and I discussed that off air previously about how we all can um easily end up on some kind of runaway train with our lives a little bit gosh yes you said but Andrew gosh sorry I know I, I tend to cut in it's only my enthusiasm because you've studied a human psychology degree haven't you yeah, so my background's in in human. In, I've got a human psychology background, and uh, I was involved in human therapy for about about twelve years before I came into working with animals. Uh, it was my own. Um, so I might find this ironic, but it was my own my own breakdown that actually shifted what I did for uh, for my for my life. And it just goes to show, just because you know about stuff doesn't mean you're immune to it. And actually, my breakdown is very much connected to um, a very deep trauma that I had when I was a child uh, that uh, kind of came out and, and it and it kind of does because I had a lot of inappropriate coping structures there. And this is why I'm really passionate about looking at things through the emotional experience lens, whether it's a, a fellow human or, or the dog or the horse or the cat, it doesn't really matter. Because the two things about the emotional experience, one is we all have one. Um, and secondly, and this is the important bit, Anna, I think they're all unique to us as individuals. So people might say, for example, well, we don't know how a dog thinks and feels, so we'll ignore that bit and we'll just focus on what we can or can't make them do. But I don't know how you think and feel, Anna. 
<laughs> so should I should I ignore that and just make you do stuff? And but no. And I think when we think about safety, deep safety, especially social safety, when we think about the role of trauma, all these things are really applicable to us all, including our dogs. And I think that's why it's just so fascinating, I think. Well, it is actually, without doubt, you know, I'm on your page on this, that dogs are emotionally intelligent, sentient, complex beings, and everyone is an individual. You know, I mean, gosh, <laughs> that's 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 so, so, so evident, but it never ceases to kind of shock me in a way that people don't know that in a way, or perhaps do, but again, as you say, I find it difficult to will communicate with a dog. I find that many humans, you know, love their dogs hugely and want to do the best for them and research, you know, the best diet for them in their opinion and the toys for them and all of these things. And we'll spend often a lot of money on on all of these things to make make their dogs have a great life. Yet somehow they're they're missing there's a chink missing often for me with when I see you know people on one-to-ones the chink that's missing most often is having fun with with their dog because I always think it might sound a bit basic but that one of the main things that sets us apart is that dogs don't have our sorts of worries you know mortgage payments parking tickets these type of things you know and all they really want to do is have fun and have enrichment that's fun, nourishing, mentally stimulating. But fun for me is my main driver, really. Well, fun's important. Who doesn't want to have fun, right? Uh, I think that's all very important. And I think, uh, and and this is the thing. So you, you feel something really important there, Anna, because when I was talking a moment ago about a kind of a, a welfare crisis based on a lack of awareness, perception really is everything. How you perceive the behavior of another, how you perceive the care and support needs of another will very much dictate what you do. And if you're not truly available to what those care and support needs are, then it can be very easy for us to uh, just try and mold a behavior that we think is more appropriate or that we feel is would be better for them. This is the same for humans, by the way. You know, we can all do that. There's a great um, saying, which is, uh, the path to coercion is often laid with good intent um, because, you know, I might think, oh, I know what's best for Anna. If Anna does this, she'll feel better. But will you? And we can all do that, even with my husband, right? Sometimes I get that right. Often I get it wrong. But uh, but the point is, it's about us thinking about that dog, talking about dogs specifically, uh, and what those care and support needs might be. And especially if we want them to have fun and to play uh, underneath all that are two, in my opinion, very important things that we have to recognize that we share with dogs. One is that our brains are designed for safety, especially to seek safe social connections. And secondly, that our brain is really interested in the notion of relief. So if we're feeling physical pain or discomfort or emotional pain and discomfort, we want relief for that. We seek relief for that. And it's important that when we have this partnership with our dogs, that we're constantly thinking about their need to feel safe, their need for relief, and to try and offer that relief once we've identified it. And this is the thing about arbitrarily changing the behaviour of another, even if we use positive reinforcement, which is important that we do, of course. But we have to just be mindful when we think about dogs who are struggling with safety, for example, 
that and especially if we have a trauma informed approach because some of these do dogs have, have experienced deep trauma and are, and are in a traumatized state is to make sure that what we do support and reinforce through training ideally has some innate value to the dog and offers them that relief and not just that we're getting a behavior that we want instead if that makes sense yes yeah, so it, it certainly does you know i mean look i live with prudence my miniature bull terrier She's very different, really, to to, to Molly, uh, my first miniature bull terrier. I also live with Mr. Binks, who is a bit of a one-off. He has leg calcipurfs disease. He's only got one hip joint. He gets around just fine. He's now nearly 11. <laughs> he was brought in. He was a you know rehome, so I didn't bring him in till he was two. And so he came with lots of stuff <laughs> to use Um you know, a colloquial expression that I didn't really know about because I hadn't been there in his first two years of his life. So, you know, he's been a, a wonderful little person to bring on, to develop. You know, his state was not one, I would say, of a happy, well-balanced dog, health-wise, emotionally and you know, physically, really. So he is a different dog now. Uh, with confidence and so on. And it, there's nothing more more rewarding, but I was able to identify, you know, certainly his health condition with my nutrition hat on, feed him appropriately to make him well, using you are what you eat as my main mantra and, you know, socialising him, but at his own pace. I mean, it took years, years and years for him now to be able to walk into anywhere really and know he's He's going to enjoy the experience. He trusts me not to take him anywhere that's going to be dreadful or unsafe. And, you know, as a result, he's enriched by the experience, um, which I hope you think is okay. <laughs> Everything's okay. I think that it's, it's, this is the thing. It's not about right, rights and wrongs. It's about um, trying to be... As, trying to be um, as available as we can to the emotional truth of another just happens to be a dog. And you've just described that beautifully there for, for him because uh, you identified those physical challenges, you provided relief. You identified the emotional challenges, you provided relief. You did think, I love how you say that, Anna, that you did things on his terms. And, um, you know, if we truly want to offer care and support to another, it has to be on their terms. As I say, it can be very easy for us to think, oh, I know what's best for you without necessarily waiting for the feedback from the other. Same goes for humans, of course, but, but especially for dogs. And when we think about social, uh, social uh, navigating that social environment, which um, can be very tricky even for us humans, of course, we have to separate that into social processing preferences. And, and this is, I'm sure what you did there is to learn what those social processing preferences are for the dog. And that is about safety. It's about feeling safe. We all need to process the world around us in order to feel safe. And then learning what those social engagement preferences are so that we're not putting that social pressure on the dog once they've thought, okay, I can process now to feel safe. And then making sure that they're not finding themselves in situations that are unsafe. And you've done all that here. And I think this is, the beautiful thing, the big buzzword in dog behavior at the moment is, is uh, one big kind of topic is about regulation, about thinking about nervous system regulation and about the kind of uh, move towards trying to support the dog to be able to self-regulate. In other words, they can they can have, go through their own emotional responses and have some form of ability to be able to regulate through that. And that's exactly what you've done here. Yes. And some dogs find it 
very, very difficult. Prudence does, for example. You know, she was born with noise sensitivity and touch sensitivity, which I quickly realised things weren't all exactly normal about her. You know, her reactions to certain things, to being touched, which you people assume dogs love to be touched. Well, you all know, Andrew, you know, not all dogs do. I mean, Mr Binks, he's grown to like it. Um, he was one of 15 dogs, you see, at one point in his past and you know nobody can give equal amounts of attention if you've got 15 dogs how you know and he didn't shout the loudest you see so he he wasn't used to being lavished with oh I'm getting a treat oh wow you know that even stressed him out (laughs) you know a bit I don't deserve a treat he felt so well I'm projecting here you know but uh he you know I, I think he had no self-confidence at all Mr Binks whereas Prudence on the other hand was born with self-confidence in in droves but you know her noise sensitivity and touch sensitivity have worked so against her and people just go oh and then reach to touch her she would then spring and do cartwheels and jump and bounce and people would suddenly go oh but scared of you actually you've kind of gone nuts I only wanted to stroke you so her socialization had to be completely different which many other humans out there didn't understand when I said oh is it okay if you don't touch her but just kind of talk to me instead and we just let her Mm. compose herself she's so excited she can smell all your smells and so on but that's kind of as far as we can go really people thought I was really really weird well I think the thing is um you've just described beautifully there Anna something that I'm really passionate about which is that we once we uh, understand more about our individual dogs care and support needs our primary role is to be their advocate and you've described advocacy beautifully there where you're advocating on her behalf uh, to those around her and this comes back to that lack of awareness again you know um uh, the general public have been convinced over the last I don't know how many years that the most important thing is to have a well-trained obedient dog the most important thing and whilst training is important if everything is about obedience and having that dog who is obedient it can easily take away the dog's ability to communicate back to you about their care and support needs because everything becomes a training issue rather than it being a communication issue and what you've described there beautifully with her is how you've recognized her sensitivities and being sensitive by the way you know no dog is broken i want to say this to anybody listening in who has a dog who has some challenges that no dog is broken based on another person's version of normal uh you know they they just have different care needs and some of these dogs will always struggle to navigate the social environment they may always struggle to regulate well there are many humans who are the same uh but um, the more we can step into that emotional experience with them the more we can support them the more we can advocate for them as, as you're talking about there and, and advocacy is really important um uh, and this is the, the the big difference here for me about where we're looking at you had my 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 friend and, and colleague kim brophy on uh and that was a great conversation talking about ethology and and that side of things, we you know we're learning a lot more now, you know, the, the kind of landscape around our understanding from a behavioral science point of view of dogs is just is just kind of growing all the time. And for me, it's about a shift that is happening from a very task orientated view of, of being with dogs. And um, that is what a lot of the TV shows are about. A lot of the stuff, uh, a lot of the less helpful advice is about task. How do we do task? So the task being 
stop the dog barking, stop the dog lunging, stop the dog growling, whatever it is. Um, the problem with task is if you get very involved in task, it doesn't mean you don't care, but it means that it becomes task at all costs. And this is what I see a lot of the arguments that are used for aversive training, because, of course, they will do task and they will get the job done. But without necessarily consideration of that dog's ability to feel safe or to provide relief. Um, and uh, so for me, this is a shift to more of a care orientated approach. And in kind of psychological framing, this notion of moving from task to care is something that we always need to be mindful about. And, and again, you've described really beautifully there, Anna, with both of your dogs, how you, you had a care-orientated view. We still do tasks. We still look for tasks. We still need to have boundaries. Boundaries are important, of course. But boundaries shouldn't become barriers to unmet need from the other. And the more no, we're no. into task, the more we can miss things because we just want the task done without necessarily waiting for the feedback from the dog about whether they can do it or not. So interesting. So interesting. I mean, you, you you must also agree to sort of tap into uh, a dog's natural, you know, behaviours that are displayed naturally by the dog. For example, Prudence, unusually in a way for her breed, loves sniffing, like is obsessed, like sniffs like a sniffer dog. And I remember thinking as a puppy, um, my word, I thought, you know, I thought, Brew, you could be a professional sniffer dog. I should, I should get in touch with the police. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, because of her nose, you know, the shape of her face is bull terrier. You know, their olfaction is known to be amazing. It's just most of them are, are many bull terriers are very lazy. You know, they're quite happy to sit on the sofa all day watching daytime TV. Very, it can be very, very lazy. Prudence has, didn't get any lazy genes, let's put it that way, Andrew. She's on the go, which is partly her noise sensitivity and touch sensitivity kicking in. You know, she she's busy. She has to be busy. And so I have to I have to channel, well, I see it that I channel this natural uh, propensity to be busy and to use her nose into games, searches on walks, because that I feel then perhaps using your terminology here gives her the relief. Because she mm. is, you know, doing what she wants to do, but we turn it into a game. I mean, I hardly ever buy any tennis balls, Andrew, because Prudence will upcycle up them. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, she'll be off. And I think, what on earth are you doing now? You know, and, um, and then so proud she'll emerge, you know, like Lara Croft from the bushes with a tennis ball you know and I <laughs> and I I pretend to be surprised and happy and all the rest of it because I, but I know what she's found the scent mm. of a tennis ball you know because you know, we're in London there you know we haven't got sort of wildlife or livestock nearby so what do you think of that she's so chuffed with herself you know I think that's brilliant if only there was money in manky old tennis balls because <laughs> Harley my black lab he can sniff one from a mile off Yes. And he just loves finding them. He just loves finding them. And um, uh, yeah, so yes, it's a shame, shame it's not truffles, eh? But um, well, I have um, trained her museum. <laughs> this is now where we segue to task. So, as part of that, seeing that in her, her natural, you know, um, excellence at doing mm. this, I thought, gosh, what, what could I train her to sniff? You know, <laughs> Semtex and all the rest of it, there's not really going to be much fun and we don't really get access to anything. So, I thought, Oh, truffles, that could be quite a fun thing to do. In the film, The Truffle Hunter, 
was uh, being released and I thought, oh gosh, this is fun. So she is sent trained to find a, a British truffle, but it's quite difficult to go truffle hunting because you need a proved um, status from the landowner that owns the land because it's not like picking a wild mushroom so it's all got rather complicated in the pandemic not least because you couldn't go anywhere so and there are no truffles really in Hackney there are some in Epping Forest but you can be fined actually if they find that you have dug up a truffle so <laughs> I, I don't need that aggravation but so what do you think did I have I ruined things for Prue by turning it into a task that Possibly, you know, it was my human mm. idea that mm, might be channeling her, you know, disposition to sniff things out to be mm, on my terms mm, or not. Um, uh, no, not at all. Remember, uh, task, when we think about things from a task only orientation, that means that we do the task regardless, regardless of how the other feels, regardless of, you know, whatever care orientation. We still can do tasks, but we start from a point of view of learning from the dog first. Uh, checking in with the dog, you know, making sure that they're feeling up to it today, all this kind of thing. So um, it's not that task is bad. It's just what what value we put on task ultimately. And especially when we're trying to um, support a dog with behavioral challenges, you know, the fact that we can stop a dog from barking, well, what does that mean? Because, you know, it doesn't mean necessarily that dog feels any safer or that they, they have relief. It could be that they're just not able to bark anymore, if that makes sense. So no, I think that's great. I think, you know, again, you, you kind of identified with with Prudence about her lover sniffing and then um, to kind of, uh, you know, you can, when, when training is done well, when it's a partnership, when we make sure that everybody who's part of that activity is there willingly and wants to do it, it's the most beautiful thing in the world, right? Yeah, no, I know. I do love it. I mean, I love mm. it. I, I found great comfort in dogs, really, as a child. You know, I was lucky that everyone, all our family, everybody, everybody had a dog, you know. I would always just hang out with, with the dog, really. I wasn't too fussed about um, interactions with, with humans, really, which, looking back, yeah, I think I know why. You know, it's kind of strange, isn't it, how, how your life develops. But uh, dogs enrich our lives so greatly. And I, I, I do worry a bit that, a lot, that, as you say, awareness now has got so skewed. I might, you know, suggest that social media is partly to blame, that the the economy is to blame, the hound pound, you know, this booming industry where different foods are invented the whole time. And, uh, you know, you name it, isn't it, Andrew? And uh, really, the, the beauty of dogs for me is that they're not simple. I don't mean they're simple. But they're, they're not awfully, you know, they don't want loads of things. You know, they, they are the antithesis to humans. And I think that's the key. That's why they're man's best friend, because they offer us purity, truth of really what life should be like. Uncomplicated, fun, calm, happy. That's it, really. What do you think? Am I? Am I well, yeah, no, I agree. Well, that's, you know, I think I think we can all be more dog. I think that's for sure. And I think uh, and and actually, you know, what we have to remember is we we humans are animals. We're a human animal. Uh, we we've developed uh, especially our our kind of um, thinking brain, our prefrontal cortex, and that has 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 grown to a huge size, which makes us very unique. So we um, we're able to moderate and modulate our behaviour better. So that makes us civilized. 
doesn't feel like it sometimes I know uh and um it means <laughs> you got to laugh more, <laughs> yeah. we have a more philosophical view of, of behavior and the world around us and all these kind of things so um but but underneath that we still have the same primary needs um you know uh uh the need for safety the need for relief the need for safe social connection this thing about safe social connection the most important word there is safe because if we don't feel safe then we flip from connection to protection. Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of the dogs I work with, they are in the situations they're finding themselves. They're de- they're feeling deeply unsafe, and you can't teach safety, you can't teach calmness, you because the other has to feel calm. They have to feel safe. So we have to try and do what we're doing with our support protocols and our training protocols to try and support the animal to get to a point where they can feel safe. They say we, we can't, um, you know, you can't, you can't put calmness on cue. You know, if, if you were very elevated now, uh, I couldn't just say, Anna, calm. <laughs> and then you'd be, oh yeah, I'm calm now. Um, and in fact, if I, if I asked you to calm down, Anna, I might, uh, I might get what for, but of course, this is the point, of course. So it's very hard, you can't just turn it off. Uh, but we experience the same things. It's, it's very interesting listening to Kim Brophy again, of course, he talks a lot about ethology with animals. And about how, in, you know, in Mother Nature, when we think about the adults of the species, you see very little dysregulation. And these are animals that are fighting for their lives on a daily basis quite often. Whereas as humans, we kind of thrive in this almost dysfunctional state. We almost celebrate stress. Uh, you know, oh, I work 90 hours a week. Isn't that great? Um, and, uh, you know, one of the reasons I had my breakdown, of course, was that I didn't give myself a chance to reassess or reappraise during my 20s. I was just that runaway train which, which got pushed out the station by my trauma. Uh, uh, so the breakdown sounds a horrific thing. I'm not recommending people have a breakdown, but but for me, it was kind of life-saving because it put a stop to that runaway train and it allowed me to do some reappraisal and, and to think about my own thoughts. But So we, we can learn a lot from dogs. Dogs are very much, you know, like you say, their needs are quite simple, uh, but they are beyond just a nice bowl and a nice collar. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is it yeah 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 no Kim Brophy and I so enjoyed um talking with her because it's it's music to my ears I think really that yourself and and of course the UK charter which you've been very you know key and instrumental I should say in setting up which is how would you describe the UK charter the latest dog body uh association to come together with key professionals and organizations to offer a, a different view that can complement, I would say, other training institutions. Yeah, so uh, I must uh, start by saying I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not involved directly with the charter now. I, I kind of um, did my bit for a couple of years. I, I, I set it up. I got all the different uh, the other stakeholders, the other kind of interested parties together around a table. That's my thing, really, trying to bring people together. I'm not really into the politics of things and the and the uh, campaigning side of things. So my amazing colleague, uh, Carolyn Monteith, who might be a good person to come and speak to you, actually just on the charter, is now the coordinator. Right. But I can tell you where my initial foundational stuff came from, and that is that, uh, you know, um, the dog training and behaviour industry is unregulated uh the um nobody was talking to each other uh there's no accountability for the general public it's kind of pays your money takes your chance um uh, and i thought you know we need to come together we need to grow up a little bit i guess with those accrediting bodies that 
have their memberships, those people who do things the right way and have high standards regarding professional conduct and welfare and bring them together so that we can create one central aim. So it's a case of bringing these together to think about what is it that we can do to come together and actually talk to each other and look at what the future is for our profession so we can add professionality and most importantly to add accountability for the general public. So that's what the charter is. It's, it's a really amazing document, actually, because it's only one page long. So we managed to condense it down to the really important things. And it is about drawing a line in the sand regarding uh, professional conduct uh, and methods and tools and, um, you know, trying to get it so that if anybody sees the tick, which is the charter logo, uh, and they employ a professional who is covered by that, they can do so with some confidence that that person is um, properly accredited, they're properly monitored and they're properly supported. Uh, and most importantly, that if there is a grievance or a complaint, uh, the way we set up the charter was you have the signatory body. So the, the professional, as in me, for example, as a certified behaviorist, my accrediting body signs up to the charter, which is what my my governing body did. Uh, and then my governing body and myself are now under the charter premise uh so if there is a complaint made about me as a professional then the first thing is my governing body would be expected to look at that properly and go through their procedures but if that wasn't satisfactory then we set up uh as part of the charter an independent uh oversight committee of some very um esteemed people uh dr mott j wolf dr robert faulkner taylor dr kathy murphy um, I can't remember who else might be on there. Sorry about that. And about, it might have changed, actually, but I know they're still on there. So these are people who are independent, so uh, they can look at the things. And this is important because, you know, you can pay a lot of money for somebody to come and support you with your dog. At the moment, it's a bit of a Wild West, right? Well, yes, uh, I mean, it's true. It yeah. is un unregulated. And also to come up with something that, so there's a lot of discussions with uh, various government departments, they're still ongoing to try and provide something that would actually be fit for purpose for some form of whether or not we'll ever get it fully regulated as such from a governmental point of view i don't know but at least to have some uh kind of official oversight from government um to so the general public can think you know what i know what the charter scheme means i can i can and it's a bit like some of the stuff that we might do, get done like some of the kind of more clinical based cosmetics that we might have done. We can go to a licensed practice or we could go to somebody's kitchen in the in the, in the back of their house. Right. Uh, <laughs> so people still had, would have a choice. Probably. I, I can't see the government saying you must see a chartered person. But uh, I think we do have a chance, though, with the charter because it's simple. It's uh, it references the Animal Welfare Act, which is already there um it's about self-regulation actually on behalf of the industry government likes that of course uh so i think uh you know it has a good shot at trying to get some connection to government and you know we need more recognition now that just becoming a dog professional isn't enough you know uh you and i were talking off air about the tragedy with the with the dog walker uh yes. and um uh you know as i was saying off air you know th these things aren't new in as far as having uh terrible dog um attacks and maulings and and deaths sadly but what is different here of course is that uh there is an element of somebody you know i don't want to talk about the specific cases as such but uh just trying to do their job of walking dogs and, and it shows the potential risk always if we don't have enough diligence and guidance and oversight so that's what the charter is looking to do that with 
dog professionals uh, in regards to training and behaviour. I think there's an argument that we need to think about that in in other fields as well. Yes, uh, absolutely. Certainly, third party carers for your dog are are so key. You know, you're trusting your your best friend with someone else in a, in a nutshell, whether to take it on board their training advice or, you know, to take your dog for a walk. Yeah, I was terribly shocked by by that incident, to be honest, and deeply saddened, I'll say. But let's hope something like that doesn't happen again. But I think one of the problems we have is that, a bit mindful of time, but I'm um, I'm enjoying listening to you so much, Andrew, we could have a four-hour podcast, I'm joking, but uh, is, I think, you know, you say lack of awareness, you know, I think a lot is misconstrued as to understanding social manners, really, with dogs. What would you say to that? hundred percent. I think this is the key, isn't it? I think. And, and I'm always happy to come back, Anna, because I do love talking to you as well. So um, no, you will come back. Myself. But um, <laughs> a lot of it comes down to this. We're all kind of indoctrinated into what we class in kind of psycho speak uh, as the good to bad continuum. That which dictates that somehow behavior is on a continuum. So that's good behavior. That's bad behavior. That's acceptable behavior. That's unacceptable behavior. And then the notion underneath that, that we should reward the good and we should ignore or punish the bad, depending on what your view is. And that all sounds right, doesn't it? It sounds right. But there is a really fundamental question we have to ask, and that is who is deciding what's good or bad? And what is the behavior of the other in representation of their need to feel safe or relief? So a lot of things that we see with dogs who try to communicate, they're not feeling safe. And that might be might be even something as simple as pulling on the lead, actually. Or it could be growling or it could be barking or it could be lunging or it could sadly be biting. If we have this notion that somehow that is intrinsically bad, and especially with some of the labels we have or the dog's trying to be dominant or the dog's trying to be this or trying to be that, we just end up falling into the trap of just tackling behavior. But you know what? If that dog doesn't feel heard, they're likely to escalate that behavior. I've just finished working with a with a dog that um, used to lunge and bark at children. And they'd worked with a local trainer, a, a compulsion based trainer, aversive based trainer. And uh, after only two sessions, the dog stopped lunging and barking at children. So the, the owners were really happy because they thought, well, that's great. The dog's behaviors change. So therefore, everything's OK and the, everything's going to be OK. Six months later, the dog bit a child. And it was an inevitability, really, because from the dog's point of view, the problem hadn't been resolved. You know, that dog's the inability to feel safe around children still hadn't changed the dog just stopped doing the behavior because it was fearing the consequence mm. uh so it's a big thing for us to think about and um there's a yeah behavior is complicated and I, I wish it was as easy as we used to kind of think it was because um when we think about um uh, uh, kind of the need for early secure attachments we know that these kind of things apply to dogs now when we think about the neurology that we learn about, when we think about the need for safety, when we think about the need for social safety, when we think about the need for relief, when we think about all that you're really on this stuff, Anna, you know, the need, the, the need for good diet, the, the importance of the internal nervous system, not just about what we take on through our external senses, but our internal system, you know, the tummy, the gut brain axis, all this stuff. So many dogs are just in a state where they're desperately trying to communicate they need something and they're being shut down for that. 
Um, and this is why I'm really passionate about the work I do with, with Pet Remedy, of course, because when we think about it, um, when we work with the dog, we have to allow a time for us to learn as much as we can. This is why good observations are important. And we have to try and stack the cards in our favour a little bit. Uh, and a product like Pet Remedy really helps with that because um, it gives me at least providing some temporary relief, if not absolute relief. But no, I agree with you. I think it's very important um, that we... Uh, that we try and think about educating the public more than just the training stuff. The training stuff's important, but we've got a situation now where many of the general public, not all, but many, know how to teach sit, but they don't know what pain looks like. They know how to teach uh, recall, but they don't know what stress looks like. They know um, uh, how to get the dog to do agility, but they don't know the importance of diet. Yeah. So, so, so actually, we have to look at ourselves actually as a as a community, dog training community, and think right. We spent thirty or forty years since the kind of big explosion of dog training as a commodity, teaching task. <laughs> now we need to start thinking about what we're educating, and that that includes our puppies. Teaching puppies sit down, come stay, whilst it's not unimportant, isn't actually the most important thing for those new dog owners or for that dog. You know, Mother Nature. We humans are kind of obsessed really with structured learning that's why we have schools and we go to dog training classes mother nature not so much mother nature puts a lot more emphasis on experiential learning in other words what we learn just by doing and we can all think about that you know if we think back to school for example we don't remember a lot of what we learned um uh kind of through structured learning but we remember a huge amount of what we learned through the experience of it how we connected to peers how we connected to authority whether we felt safe how we felt safe with learning so there's a lot to unpack there, I think. There really is. I'm thinking about school days, particularly. You know, suddenly I've thought about some school teachers that, you know, I hated, you know, um, well, ones, ones that, are, you know, I, I, I loved, um, for example. Mm. So those humans did obviously impact on me. I can't remember the detail about anything right now. But but yes, it is, it is fascinating and it's subtle. I think the thing is with all this, it's subtle and it's, it's quite hard to explain to people, <laughs> I think. It's subtle, but it's fundamental. So that for one really important thing is there is a huge difference between what we are taught and what we learn. <laughs> so if I've got a dog in front of me and I'm trying to teach them to do something, I'm just going to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until they do it. The dog may have now learned that particular, you know, the thing that I've tried to teach them, but they've also learned their ability to let me know when they've had enough their ability to go away and have a sniff, their ability to give consent. You know, so we learn a huge amount. And interestingly, when you think back to those teachers at school, those ones that didn't ha that didn't make you feel safe, that's the most important thing you remember about them, right? Yeah, Not, yeah. Nothing they've taught you. The ones who you really loved, you probably will remember more of that only because you were more inspired. You know, learning, we have to be in a little sweet spot for good learning. Yes. We have to we have to we have to be motivated. We have to be focused. We have to be calm. Uh, uh, but also we have to decide when we're in that state. You know, a child who comes to school. Can't even start learning if they're hungry. They can't even start learning if they're already stressed because of domestic abuse at home or whatever. It is. So there's always component parts. I had deep trauma when I was younger. I won't go into details on it now, but 
but I, and, I, and I couldn't share it with my parents at the time. It all came out later, of course. And for six months, I was all over the place because of what happened to me. And I didn't tell anybody. And because that meant my behavior changed at school, I ended up getting the slipper and the cane on two occasions, Anna. Gosh. Because that's what we did back then, right? Because I was being naughty. <laughs> but I was being, I wasn't being naughty. I, I was just really struggling to, to cope with stuff. And, and the one time I got the slipper was because I didn't take my gym kit. Well, guess what? My head was kind of was deep in my trauma. So we have to be careful about this notion of just thinking, oh, yeah, well, we need to show you a lesson. And this is what we expect of you and all these kind of things without recognizing the other's ability to do it or what else might be going on. Mm, definitely, definitely. And uh, and to really understand that dogs, as we said at the start, you know, they have moods, they have good days, they have bad days, just like us. And and it is to look, you know, for underlying physical pain often because dogs are so stoic. You know, they might have toothache, for example. I'm really into mm. um, dental care at the moment, a uh, project I'm working on, actually, Dog Dental Month, which I'm very excited about, <laughs> to help raise awareness about toothache in dogs, for example, Andrew, but something like that. Yeah, of course. Gosh, you know, absolutely it is. Yeah. And one thing to bear in mind is on a a final point, really, is that when I I met you at the London Vet Show, I I was talking at the London Vet Show, along with my colleague, uh, Dr. Robert Fulton-Taylor, as part of the pet remedy, uh, talking about pet remedy and the science behind it. And my pitch really to the vets was, you know, we used to say, is it pain or is it behavior? And actually that isn't fit for purpose now, Anna. We have to ask a question, is it physical pain and discomfort or is it emotional pain and discomfort? And both are equally valid. They're often interconnected, of course, because if you've got your dental pain, it's not going to make you feel very good. But also we now know that the part of the brain that deals with things like, for example, social pain, um, and this is why the fear of social rejection for us humans is so great, um, is, this, is the same part of the brain for physical pain. So really? actually, so pain is pain, really. And uh, when you speak to young children, they get it, right? Because if that young child is nervous, they say, oh, my tummy hurts. You see, yeah. because they feel it physically and they move on. it. So we just have to, I think with, for us humans, uh, especially for us Brits, right? You know, they all stiff up a lip and all this kind of stuff. Uh, we we kind of see emotions as being a bit wishy-washy and a bit airy-fairy and, and something we should uh, do. I, I spoke to somebody once who said uh, about her child, which I thought was a bit worrying. She said, um, oh, I'm all for emotion, she said, with my child, as long as they don't show it. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but we kind of have ended up like that a little bit societally because of all the conformist stuff that we're expected to fit into regarding our ability to communicate emotional need. And uh, mm, mm. Yeah. I just remember once as a child thinking, you know, you must never hurt someone's feelings. And that's something I've <laughs> tried to do, really. You know, um, sometimes I think, you know, in the human realm, you can be perceived as being too nice. <laughs> And the irony of all things is in the human realm, sometimes to not be nice gets you further in life. <laughs> well, do you know, I'll just finish on this because it's a, it's quite humbling. I think my husband is uh, he's an end of life nurse at hospice. Gosh. And he's bared witness to the dying hours of well, hundreds of people, maybe even thousands. I don't know. Uh, and nobody has ever said to him, oh, I wish I'd been more proper. I wish I'd had a bigger house. I wish I'd had more cars they've all said they wish they had more time they wish they had more time to connect to others they wish they had had more time with their family they wish that they'd been able to express and show their love better and i think that's a humbling lesson for us because this is the thing about dogs right they get that they get the importance of connection and and trying to show 
uh, an ability for safe social connection, um, mm. which is uh, a lot of our everyday life pushes away from that because of this notion of how we should be and what we what success looks like and what we should be doing with our lives. Mm. So it's good to have reflection sometimes. And well, it really is, especially where dogs are concerned. You know, yeah. I, I do say to people, look, your time with your dog is short. You know, mm. and you know the worst thing is to have regret or guilt that you didn't maximize that time. So for me, it is about spending time in the right way with your dog proactively and understanding your dog as being your best friend. And time is short. So it is, as you say, absolutely worth, we have to maximize it indeed. Thank you, Andrew. I really, gosh, I really, this has been a, a, a wonderful experience chatting with you. I'm very humbled and honoured that you've come on. And I will just add, actually, I know you mentioned Pet Remedy there. I love Pet Remedy. My my favourite of the range is the um, diffuser. And what I find interesting about the diffuser is because it's a herbal formula, it works on cats, it works on dogs, but it also works on humans too. I've often had one in my bedroom when I've had trouble sleeping and we're all on the bed, you know, and we're all <laughs> we're all snoring away. And it's really been useful when I, I spent three years moving house a lot. Um, and yes, there was a pet remedy with us all the way. Well, I'll leave you to a little secret here, Anna, because, um, you know, I, I struggle with my nerves sometimes. What we, and a lot of things we do, even coming to speak to you on your wonderful podcast today, you know, we get a bit nervous about stuff because we want to do well. And uh, I often have a spray pet remedy before I do these things because, um, you know, uh, it's not uh, it's not labelled for you, as I know, but the point is it's multi-species and, and that's the beautiful thing about it. It's natural um, and it works in multiple ways. And um, so if you have the plug-in, especially anybody in that room will benefit from it. Yes, yes. And you, you, you do get used to the earthy smell. Which earthy I don't... smell. Yeah. It's, got, it's got a lot better. The formulation has changed. Um, oh, is it? Oh. Uh, in, in the old days, it was very heavy because it's the valerian, which is actually the active ingredient. So you, it, the fact you're smelling it is cool. One thing that's really interesting about, especially the fact of the power of olfaction, which is what Pet Remedy does, is when we think about um, neurological mapping, uh, our visual and auditory mapping is kind of um, fixed at quite an early age, so it doesn't really change. Whereas our olfactory mapping changes all the time and then Pet Remedy utilizes that. So what that means is, for example, um, let's go back to my husband again at the, at the hospice, you know, he gets used to the smells of the hospice. If we go away on holiday for a couple of weeks and he comes back, he's really aware of them again. And of course the big perf perfume industries uh, play on this because uh, after a while our nose maps that kind of, uh, that kind of, um, smell and then bangs and then we don't we don't necessarily notice it so much and the same thing happens with pet remedy of course you know you just become less uh it becomes less noticeable but they have changed the formulation um in the last couple of years actually so anybody who's tried it before and thought oh i, I can't i don't like the smell it's not as potent no and besides it's uh, it is as you say a natural but b you know it's not like strawberry cheesecake smell or something <laughs> which is really synthetic and obviously loaded with volatile organic compounds that really you don't want going up your nose but we'll save that for another episode yes. uh, maybe more on environmental stressors as of course mm. things like strawberry cheesecake flavor um, aromas can be a stressor to your body oh dear and especially to doggies, because God, we, we, we know a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the power of their olfaction system and, and how it works and how the kind of um, vulvarasal organ works and all this kind of thing, Anna. So I think, you know, one of the things I did when I started 
working with Pet Remedy actually and understanding this more and especially working with with Dr. Robert Faulkner Taylor is we got rid of all the artificial scents in our home. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, it's essential. Yeah. I mean, that's what I studied as well, you see, with the mm. College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. I mean, things like, for example, um, you know, newly laid engineered wood floor, you know, you turn on the central heating and bang, guess what is you know oozing around your property formaldehyde volatile organic compounds of which obviously is a deadly substance so yes mm -hmm. quickly you know you can remedy this with normal black tea bags so people would visit me in the cottage where I just put down this floor and uh and had a heart attack about it actually thought what can I do I can't afford to rip this up and then yeah anyway so black tea will absorb uh, formaldehyde from the atmosphere by 90%. Mm. So things like that. Are very, <laughs> so people would visit and go, look, lovely cottage, Anna. No, well done, all this. You know, I moved very soon after I actually moved in. But anyway, he said, why have you got tea bags all over the floor? <laughs> 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 so on that note we're, yes. but, oh olfaction please can we do a whole episode on a dog's olfaction it's my favorite subject well i think we should get dr robert in uh i could either come in with with him we could do a double or we'll just have dr robert in because he knows a lot about this stuff and um he could definitely talk about the you know the good thing about dr robert is he's an academic he's a he's a behavior science geek but he talks in a way that we can all find accessible yes um, i say do yeah. a double header i think why not that would be yeah. really great mm. well so listeners you, get ready for that that'll be coming soon thank you again andrew brilliant thank you so much anna i love what you do um and uh, thank you so much for this opportunity that's our show mr binks what did you think yes i know andrew does talk a lot of sense and what's that Yes, you're right, it is time for Woof of the Week. We all know that we have good days and bad days. Well, so does your dog. So take the time to notice how your dog is feeling. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. If you did, go on, rate and review the show wherever you tune into your podcasts. Thanks again, of course, to Andrew Hale for joining us today. And you got it, all the links are in the show notes. Thanks, of course, to Mike Hansen, my producer, for all the music and production as ever. Find out more about him at Pod People UK. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, yes, you can. You can check out our Patreon service if you like. There's a couple of exclusive recordings on there that are only available if you join. And if you want to find out more about me, I'm just at Anna Webb Dogs. What's that, Mr. Binks? Yes, you're right. We will be in your feed next Sunday. So go on. Why don't you subscribe now? Because it's free. And then you'll never miss another show. Bye for now.